Good morning. Aren't you glad you're here today? What a, what a thrill it is. I appreciate these young men so much. Um, don't take that for granted. It takes a lot of courage to stand before you, you wonderful people, especially when there's so many of you wonderful people. Uh, I will often tell people I still get um, a little sick to my stomach every single Sunday morning. Uh, it's just, uh, just part of it, you know, um, but it's for a wonderful cause. Before we get into the lesson, let me share two things with you. Um, this past Wednesday, we had our last night of prayer for the summer. We scheduled three of those, and we printed a list of all the requests. It was a, a great night. Got many uh, positive comments. People appreciating the time of prayer, the many requests that were shared. Um, one exception to things going well is that not all the requests made it in the list. And for that, I am so sorry. Just a little oversight. Um, and so because of that, we have added those and we have reprinted that list. And so uh, you'll notice as you came in in the little rack that has the bulletins, it's also Information Center. There's a few here on the stage. I want to encourage you to get this. Uh, some of you weren't here Wednesday night, or maybe we're teaching, and you want to get one anyway. Um, some of these are heartwarming. Um, so many of them are encouraging. Uh, some of them are just desperate and even gut-wrenching. Uh, people just sharing their hearts with their desires and how they're wanting God to work and to save people and help people and, and heal people. So let me encourage you to, to, to take one of those and, you know, pray. There's 12 pages of requests of people who are saying, help me, pray with me, um, bring this before the Lord. So you do a page a night and just work your way through it. Just sit down another time and just take an evening. It will be time well spent. I want to encourage you to keep on praying for one another. Our small group Bible studies will start two weeks from today. Now, in years gone by, we've started those in August, and this year we're waiting until after the Labor Day holiday, and we're going to start off strong in two weeks, and so not too late to join those. Uh, but tonight, with a lot of folks out of town, it's kind of a hard time to have any kind of organized programming, so we've got another night of hospitality. So, And then after tonight, we'll start back with our usual Sunday night uh, schedule for the rest of the year. Today we're going to talk about our final lesson in this One Another series, and I put on the screen John 13, 34, and 35. We've shared this not every lesson, but many times. Jesus' words, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. This morning, I want to consider someone who shows us what this looks like in a very tangible way. So I'm going to end the series with, I, I think, one of the best examples, but is also one of the least known people in Scripture. In fact, if I said his name, you might remember hearing his name, but you might not remember who he was or, or what he did. So to understand the situation, let's talk about this. Paul knows that his life is coming to an end. It's not getting easier. He's writing his letter to Timothy, his second letter, and he's thinking this may be the last letter that he writes. 
And so if you're familiar with the book of 2 Timothy, you remember when he's writing, you can sense his emotion and, and his passion. Now, Paul always did everything with uh, gusto. I mean, uh, his, his passion is always there. But in this letter, it's even more. And especially his emotion, because he knows the end is drawing near. So I'll put this on, your screen, on the screen. If you want to read in your own Bible, it's at 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including... Phagelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of, of Anesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Now, if you've read or heard the name of Onesimus, you've probably forgot about him. But we just read about him here. And I've heard of a lot of people with peculiar names, in fact, even more and more of late, but I've still not heard anyone named Onesiphorus. But what do we need to know about this situation here? Paul is writing from Rome. He's in prison again. But the first time he was in prison there, it was a house arrest. And so he was treated a little more gently, and he eventually was released. Well, this is no house arrest this time. Now he's in a dungeon. And now he senses that he's not getting out. And so as he's talking, as he's thinking, as he's remembering here, he is very realistic about what is happening. You know, Paul is the, in my mind, the, the epitome of a spiritual optimist. He was always seeing even a challenge as an opportunity. But you don't read that in this second letter to Timothy. You might remember his words later in the same chapter, chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. The time has come for my departure. Remember that line? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. He knows it's coming. He knows. But the prospect of dying for Jesus was not discouraging for Paul. Remember him saying, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So the thought of dying for Jesus, that did not discourage him. Do you know, want to know what discouraged Paul? The thought of dying alone, deserted, abandoned by the people he thought would be there for him. And he mentions that several times in this letter. You can tell it's weighing on his heart. And he's calling people out even by name. Verse 15, he mentions two by name. The verses we just read, Phagelus and Hermogenes. Chapter 4, he adds Demas to that list. But we also read the line earlier, everyone in the province of Asia has turned their back on me. What a statement. They turned their back on me. See, Paul expected to bear his own cross, but he didn't expect to bear it alone. He thought others would be there for him. And some of you, as you're hearing this, you think, I, I know what that's like. I I've been there before. People I thought, good friends, family, I thought would be there for me in my time of need were not. And so as you hear this, you're thinking about this. I, I get it. I, I relate. So Paul is spending his last days Counting the people who knew, he knew could count on, who would be there for him. I'll put a, these verses on the screen. The first he thought of is Timothy, and he's writing the letter to Timothy. 
He wrote in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience as night as day, as I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears, I long to see you. Well, that says it, doesn't it? I, not, I would love, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Because again, he knows his situation is dire and he's expressing his heart. And you hear him saying this, I, I, I long to see you. I want just one more time. In fact, later he wrote in this very letter, do your best to come to me quickly. Do your best to come before winter. I mean, so he's calendaring this. He's thinking, I may not live through the next year. My time is coming. He knew his days were numbered. So he was thankful for Timothy. He also mentions Aquila and Priscilla, chapter 4, verse 19. They were good friends. He could count on them. And so he calls them out by name. And then he says, Onesiphorus, chapter 4, verse 19. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Well, what has this little-known follower of Jesus done that impressed the great Apostle Paul. What was his action? What was his accomplishment? Well, look at the screen again at 2 Timothy 1.16. The NIV says, he often refreshed me. It was not ashamed of my chains. The New Living Translation says, he often visited and encouraged me. The Good News Bible says, he cheered me up many times. But that word refreshed in the NIV is really the best translation of that word. That Greek word that's translated refresh appears only one time in the Bible, and this is it. It means, in medicinal use, the, 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 you expose a wound to fresh air. And you realize there's times where that's good. Or ever have a little one come to you with the boo-boo? And you give it just a little puff of air, that cooling breeze that eases the sting for a moment. That's what we're talking about, refresh. It means reviving with fresh air. Bring much-needed, much-welcome relief, causing someone to recover a state of cheer or encouragement after a time of anxiety and trouble. So Paul was calling Anesiphorus a breath of fresh air. We know what that means, don't we? And we know when someone is that way to us, like when we see them, when they show up, when they come alongside us, when they give us a call, when they send that text, it is that, that breath of fresh air. What did it look like? How, how did he do that for Paul? We don't really know. Maybe he brought food. Maybe he brought supplies. Maybe medicines or, or other things, blankets, whatever he might have needed. Maybe he brought news of the churches, you know, because that was Paul. I mean, Paul always wanted to know, how you doing? How you doing? He wanted to go back and check on the churches. He loved to hear how his brothers and sisters in the faith were doing. I put this on the screen. The most important thing Onesiphorus brought was Onesiphorus. Isn't that true? That's what Paul seems to be saying here. The most refreshing thing of all is love you can count on. And when somebody is there, wherever there is, if it's the courtroom or the hospital or your bedside or, or wherever it is, when they are there for you, they are there for you. And they are that breath of fresh air. That's what we're talking about here. Onesiphorus came to remind Paul that he was loved. He came to tell Paul that he made an impact. He came to communicate to Paul by his presence that Paul was not forgotten. That he was loved and appreciated. 
that his impending death was not in vain. And he came often. And he did so in spite of the fact that Paul was condemned to die for treason. I mean, that's what was going to happen to him. Paul was alone in a dungeon. So many had deserted him. So many, all in Asia, had deserted him. But not Onesiphorus. He was there for him. Some of you may remember the Tuskegee Airmen. Been several movies made about them. They're called the Red Tails. They were kind of famous as, as military pilots during the war. But they didn't become famous because of their skin color. They became famous because of how good they were at carrying out their assignment. When the Allied bombers would fly over Europe, they were accompanied by fighter pilots. And so when the Germans would come after them, the fighter, fighter pilots would engage them, but that left the bombers alone. No one there for them. And they kept losing bomber after bomber after bomber. And a lot of Americans went down with every one. So the Tuskegee Airmen were given an incredible charge. Accompany the bombers no matter what. Do not leave them. The Red Tails flew hundreds and hundreds of missions. Only lost 25 bombers. They became legendary, and if you were a pilot flying that bomber, you wanted a red tail with you. They were legendary, because no matter how bad it got, they would stick with you. Does that not describe Onesiphorus? Because it had become really bad for Paul, so much so that he, he realizes this is it. We know so little about him, but we know Paul thought highly of him. And the way Paul described it was, he served refreshment. He was so refreshing to me. And what he did with little notice should make us take note. Here are two implications I want us to get from this. Number one, no Christian should ever lack or go without refreshment. No Christian should ever lack or go without refreshment. We are not in this world. We know that. And we're, that is true on so many levels. And in this world, we know that, that that's, that's just the way life works. That's the way the world works. Your employer's priority is that you get the job done. Their priority is not making sure that you have refreshment. You've got a job to do. They want you to get the job done. In a body, every member matters. We've talked about that in this study. And the head of our body, the church, Jesus, makes the ministry of refreshment a priority. Have we not learned that through this whole series of one another commandments? To the end of his life, Jesus talked about what that day would be like. Paul talked about, uh, about that day. Well, Jesus described that day. He, he talked about being separated like the sheep and the goats. The sheep are on the right, the goats are on the left. Y'all just figure that out where you are on that. But you remember the verse, very somber, Matthew 25, 42 and 43. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. Do you see what Jesus is describing here? According to him, it's not their lack of knowledge or their moral failures that, that took them down. That's not what he's calling them out for. He's calling them out for not serving refreshment. Isn't that what he's saying here? People who are in need, and, and you weren't there, and you didn't help them. 
And Jesus takes this personally as if you were doing it to him, or not doing it for him. When we ignore the command to love one another, in essence, we're breaking the first commandment because you really can't separate the first and the second. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. He puts the two together. You cannot say you love God if you do not refresh the least of these. Now, this may be the point of the message that we need to refrain from pointing fingers at somebody like, I know someone who's like that. This is the time when we need to look in the mirror because here's the second implication. Every Christian should be a refresher. Every one of us should be a refresher. This is not a, a matter of being gifted. Well, you know, I, I, I just can't be around sick people, or, or I don't do prisons very well, or I don't, I don't. This is not about giftedness or your inclination or your strengths or weaknesses. This is a matter of being obedient. This is a matter of being perceptive. Serving refreshment is every disciple's command and assignment. Even when you have nothing to bring but yourself, you bring yourself. How many times you've been there when someone, they just, they just show up. Their hands may be empty. They may not have flowers or food. They may not have money, but they are there for you, and you remember that. That time of need, that moment, that circumstance, serving refreshment does not require advanced degrees. It does not require big budgets. It doesn't require church-organized programs. In fact, none of those. What it does require, though, is something of you. So let me share some of those qualifications. What, what does it require? Well, number one, it begins with being selfless. You know, before we give our time and money away, we want to know what's in it for me. You know, if I, if I invest this money, what's going to be my return? What do I get for my money? What do I get for my effort? Is it going to be worthwhile? That's how the world operates. And, and for the most part, that can be wise advice and a good way to operate. But we don't bring that kind of thinking into the kingdom. You don't, when you think about a response for the Lord, it's not about how is this going to help me? That's not kingdom thinking at all. In fact, Jesus just turned that on its head. Go back and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. A whole different way of looking and thinking. Onesiphorus was not thinking that way. He was not seeking a return on his investment. He was not thinking, well, if I do this for Paul, then Paul's going to be able to help. No. Paul was about to die. Paul could do nothing for Onesiphorus. Nothing. There was nothing he was going to get out of it. Maybe he remembered Paul's writing, love is not self-seeking. Do you remember that line from 1 Corinthians 13? You know, in Jesus' kingdom, it's not about yourself. It's never about yourself. Because our king didn't operate that way. He came and lived and died for others. And we are to do the same. Well, second, it takes awareness. It takes awareness. Open your eyes. Spiritually open your eyes. Open your heart. Jesus, again, he's our model. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. And maybe we, like the good shepherd, need to realize that we are on a search and rescue mission. And with that, remember what Paul said about Onesiphorus? 
chapter 1, verse 17, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. What does that mean, he searched hard? See you where that didn't mean? It didn't mean that he, he pulled out his phone and he just uh, quickly did a, a, a search for the Roman Department of Corrections. Or got, got out his Google map and he found out all the locations. That's not searching hard. Did search hard for Anisiphorus mean he went from dungeon to dungeon searching for Paul? Did search hard mean risking his own health going into these disease-infested pits? Did search hard for Anisiphorus mean that he had to pay his own money to bribe the guards to give him information? What did it mean that he searched hard? Paul said when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. I think what that takes, it takes effort. It takes effort. More than writing a check. This is more than just here's a gift card. This is like you're going more than the second mile. What does that mean for us? It means when you come to worship, your eyes are open. You're looking for others. Jackson talked about that. Just who's here? It also means you're opening your, your, your ears and, and you're listening with your hearts. How, how are they doing? Well, what's going on? You're sensitive. You're hearing their words. You're hearing their hearts. Ask God to grant you that, that ability, that, that sensitivity, that awareness. And while you're praying, also ask God to give you a willingness to do whatever it's going to require to serve that refreshment. Third, it takes humility. It takes humility. I read about a woman who had been serving in the military. She returned home after her tour of duty in the Middle East, and her husband, he wanted to plan a very special date night, just, just the very, very tops. And so he made all of the arrangements, put money aside, and he was so proud of his wife. In fact, he wanted her to wear her uniform on this special date. Well, the evening went well. In fact, it was spectacular, without a hitch. It was a great night, except it didn't go exactly as he planned. When the limousine came to pick him up, the driver was very patriotic, saw the woman in uniform, would not take payment for the limousine. They went to the dinner, very five-star restaurant, it, it was amazing, but when it came time, someone else had anonymously paid the bill. And when they got to the theater, their balcony seats, the manager caught wind of what was happening, exchanged them for front row seats. What an amazing night. On the way home, I mean, she was just floating, feeling loved and appreciated, but he was a little concerned about everything, and he, he just said to her, he said, I'm still going to get credit for all this, though, aren't I? We do think that way, don't we? But people who refresh others, you're not looking for payback. You're not looking for credit. I, I, I doubt seriously when Anessa Forrest was doing this thinking that my name might appear in a Bible book somewhere. I don't think that is all what he was thinking. Did you even know or remember who Anessa Forrest was before this morning? You know, it's one of the, you, you probably read his names, you read through scripture before. His name means prophet bearing. For the most part, we would say 
He's a nobody. Didn't write a book. We don't read about him teaching, bringing anybody to the Lord. But do you think it mattered to Paul that the one who was there refreshing him was not a big name, well-known, not famous? Can you imagine being in that pitch black, dark prison? Some guard coming over you in the dark, kicking you on the side, saying, hey, you got a visitor. What good news. When we're down, when we're out, when we need help, when we don't know what to do, somebody just being right there. Priceless. Priceless. And you never forget that. That's what's happening here. And it takes courage. Onesiphorus knew the risk he was taking to refresh a condemned man. Did, did you notice, reading through these very few verses, every reference to Onesiphorus is in past tense? Paul said to greet the household of Onesiphorus. Paul did not write, greet Onesiphorus and his household. He didn't write it that way. Some commentaries say, based on the way Paul's wording here, describing this, I believe he was arrested and executed for helping Paul. I tend to agree. How would you feel about somebody who came there to help you and they end up being killed in the process? You can help but be overwhelmed. And to think about the good they did. Searched hard for me till he found me. He refreshed me. Greater love has no man than this. Than one laid down his life for his friend. Paul is so thankful. So moved at how he courageously loved him. So much so he wrote in chapter 1 these words, May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord. That takes courage. And here's what's going to happen, folks. You're going to be in a moment when you're not going to be warned. Okay, here it comes. Strap on your courage because you're going to need it today. You're going to be in a moment where you're going to have to make a choice. What are you going to do? In 1936, the Olympics are remembered by the four gold medals by Jesse Owens. Remember, these were the Olympics that were hosted in Berlin, Germany. And this was Hitler's way of trying to kind of prove to the world his whole idea of Aryan superiority. Of course, that, that was totally turned on its head by a black man from America. And we love that about this story. ESPN said Owens single-handedly crushed Hitler's myth of Aryan supremacy. Jesse Owens' little backstory was very nervous about the long jump because there was this tall, blonde-haired German guy who was just doing great. And so Jesse was a little intimidated about this. He was having trouble hitting his mark. And he had to hit his mark to make it through this, to make it to the finals. That's when Lutz Long, that German blonde-haired man, came over and told Jesse, why don't you put a mark just a few inches before the board? You're doing so well, you're easily going to make it. Jesse followed Long's advice, won the second gold medal, and in front of Adolf Hitler, Long was the first one to go up to Jesse and hug him 
and congratulate him. Jesse Owens said he was as good a friend as I ever had. After the Olympics, Lutz finished law school, was then drafted into the Nazi army. army. He wrote Owens a final letter in 1942, just after the U.S. declared war. My heart is telling me that this is perhaps the last letter of my life. If that is so, I beg one thing from you. When the war is over, please go to Germany, find my son, and tell him about his father. Tell him about the times when war did not separate us, and tell him that things can be different between men in this world. Your brother, Lutz. Lutz Long was injured on July 10th, 1943. That was a major campaign when the Allied forces attacked Sicily. In a British field hospital, two days later, he died. 1951, Jesse Owens made good on that promise, found Long's son in war-torn Germany. He later said that he valued the most from his whole Olympic experience was his friendship with Long. He said of Lutz, it took a lot of courage for him to befriend me in front of Hitler. It takes courage to refresh others, because others are not going to be doing it. Others are going to second guess. Others will not wonder, they'll not appreciate what you're doing at all. But one reason completely committed followers of Jesus can refresh others is because they're willing to take the scorn and the criticism or the second looks or whatever it may be upon themselves to refresh others like that. I believe you're among the bravest people in the world because cowards don't carry crosses. I put this at the conclusion. Most people don't remember Onesiphorus, but all people should want to be like him. If you wear the name of Jesus, that's who he is. That's how he lived. That's what he would do for you. And here's how it works in the kingdom of God. As a child of God, Jesus does not remember your sins. You're washed. You're clean. You have his righteousness. He remembers them no more. What he will remember are the times you refreshed. Matthew 25, verse 40, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus is the only king we seek to please. This morning, our song of encouragement is to encourage you to make Jesus your king. Confess that you believe he is the Son of God. Let him make you a new creation as he washes you clean in baptism. Express your faith. Confess your faith. Repent of your sins. If we can pray for you and encourage you, it truly is the most rewarding life. And we want you to be a part of it. Would you come as we stand and sing to encourage? The Lord lift his countenance upon